Good evening, everyone. It's a privilege to have you here with us once again. It is, uh, we are delighted and honored to have you in our midst. And we're going to be covering the topic this evening of bad religion. Um, and so I'd like to kind of give a definition of that after we pray and give kind of a big picture view here. So let's start with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Sweet Jesus, thank you for the privilege to pray. Uh, thank you that I believe you have a blessing for us this evening. And though it's a difficult topic to cover, Lord, I know that this is uh, your work and it is your word. So I pray that your word would do what it does best. And that is inform your people and transform your people. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our second evening together, we address this topic of the great controversy, the problem of evil. And what we're going to be covering today is kind of building on that framework and showing how that's affecting us even in current day uh, and how the trajectory uh, from that original fall of Lucifer is leading us to this very point in Earth's history. And we're also going to look at how some of these things we're going to learn tonight can actually affect our personal walks with God. So there should be some very practical lessons, some prophetic lessons, and uh, also kind of establishing some other issues here. But we're told in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is love. It says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And skipping to verse 16 of 1 John 4, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. This is one of the most important things you can do in your entire life, to know and believe the love that God has for you. God is love, it says, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So the Bible is clearly stating that God is love. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us a picture of what that looks like in a practical sense. This, if you were to replace the word love with the word God, you would learn about his character in these verses. That God suffers long and is kind, that he does not envy, that he does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, he does not seek his own. He is not provoked, he thinks no evil, he does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is what the Bible teaches us about the character of God. So it explains how God does life, and God lives in an atmosphere of complete other-centered love. Amen? This is the way that God does life, other-centered love. Selfishness is nowhere to be seen in his life, in his teachings, or in his example. And Jesus tells us later in his life that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And how did Jesus do life? Total, radical unselfishness. He flew in the face of norms and the expectations of the world around him. But from the very beginning of the rebellion, Satan has sought to portray God as being selfish. He's tried to make people think that God is selfish, that he's not loving, or the very source of love itself. But the interesting thing is he does this while at the same time alluring other people to live for themselves and live by his kingdom principle. Satan's kingdom principle is self first. It's selfishness. And the two big warring principles of this, this war between good and evil are love and selfishness. This truly is the bedrock of this conflict, love and selfishness. And Satan has always had a storefront on earth that's propagating, that is sharing his idea of putting self first. Do you worry about you, focus only on you, don't worry about other people. 
And it's trying to influence the entire world with this teachings and example, continuing Satan's propaganda campaign that's been going strong since his fall. This is his objective. And in a prophetic sense, later at the close of Earth's history, we're told that this very same uh, objective is being uh, basically carried out by systems. And we're going to see that later. But let's pan back and see how we got here. There's a big picture narrative that we're living in. I've made some points. Let's see those from Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we read this in our second night together, but I want you to look at things specifically that we've underlined. We didn't actually read these first verses in that chapter. We read later verses in that chapter. But listen to this. It says to say things to the prince of Tyre, which is really talking about the source of evil behind the prince of Tyre. It's talking about Lucifer himself. It says, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God and I sit in the midst of gods, yet you're a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. In verse four, with your wisdom and your understanding, you've gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasury. So it's it's intentional in, in acquiring wealth. By your great wisdom and trade, you've increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. So he's, he's seeking for gain. He's seeking for self-focus. This is speaking of Lucifer. But this philosophy is going to continue on into the systems on earth. In verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've set your heart again as the heart of a God, and then he starts talking about judgments that will come towards him again. Skip to verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So corrupting their prosperity, corrupting their wisdom. Okay. And by the iniquity of your trading, if you remember in our second message together, Satan was trafficking lies in heaven. He was a, he was a, a gorgeous angel to begin with. But he started to be filled with pride and he was soliciting, he was trafficking amongst the other angels, trying to get them to believe things about God that were not true. And did he succeed? He did. Remember, one third of the angels fell as a result of this traffic campaign, this trafficking, this trading that was going on. It continues saying, uh, now going to Isaiah chapter 14, we're just looking at a particular type of language that's used by Lucifer. And do you see the self-focus that's in these verses? Have you noticed that? It continues in Isaiah chapter 14. It says, How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, above the other angels. I will sit on the mount of the, congrega- the, mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He had selfish, upward ambitions and wants to be above everyone else and wants people taking orders from him. He wants even God himself to take orders from him. This is what pride unaddressed can do. And pride at its very base level is selfishness. Selfishness. So this spirit of selfishness and self-exaltation, pride, envy, and striving for advancement is a spirit that originates from Lucifer. And as we'll see, is one of the crowning traits of the beast powers in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation. But guys, this cannot be the spirit that rules the people of God. Are you with me tonight? Right? This is something we cannot cherish. We desperately need Jesus and his spirit of humility, gentleness, and unselfishness, and a willingness to be overlooked and unappreciated. But what was heaven's reaction to Lucifer's fall? I want to go back to a text that we looked at again in our second night together in Luke chapter 10. 
Jesus sends out 70 missionaries to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to do all these wonderful miracles. And they come back and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They kind of get excited about the fact that they've got authority over the powers of darkness. Maybe you know where I'm going here. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this is not the initial response you would expect to see. You'd, you expect to get a high five from Jesus, way to beat the bad guys, fellas. That's not the way Jesus responds. He says, I was there when this happened. When Lucifer fell, I was present. And he says, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In another place, Jesus makes a statement that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This idea of putting others first, not being excited that you've got power or authority, right? So apparently there are traces of Lucifer's spirit in the response of the disciples when they gain victory over the demons. And Jesus is saying, pump the brakes, fellas. Be careful. This is not a way of thinking that you want to cherish. But we also made a point on our second night together that what's implied here is that Jesus is still heartbroken over the reality that someone who was a part of his family defected, rebelled, and destroyed a third of the family tree. Because remember, Jesus in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 is the creator of all things, of all life. That includes the angelic life. And when you have someone that you love and you've created who's gone crazy, right, just gone off the rails and is wreaking havoc, imagine as a parent seeing your children do things that are destructive and terrible and, and you struggle. There's tension. There's dissonance there because you have love for someone you've created, but you have hatred for the destruction that they're causing. Anyone can relate to that? At least as a parent or someone, can you understand the logic behind that? There's tension. There's dissonance for God here. He hates what Lucifer's doing, and he's going to have to judge him fully for this. God's not going to give him a pass. He's not sympathizing with the devil. But we need to understand the fact that you can't just turn that off when you create something out of love. You understand that, right? So it's also easy to lose sight of the fact that Revelation chapter 12's war in heaven is a domestic dispute. It's a family affair. Love and harmony preceded this dispute. And that love in the heart of the Father and of Jesus don't just go away because someone in the family turned on them. Yeah? But there's a very practical lesson for us here. This tells me then that when I reflect the spirit of Lucifer and strive for supremacy or put myself purse or become envious of my neighbor that Jesus and the Father don't stop loving me either. Amen? There's good news for us in that. He's not sympathizing with what we do, but you understand the difference. But in the book of Job, the very first book that was written chronologically in the Bible is actually the book of Job, not the book of Genesis. And the first lesson in the book of Job, there's this assembly that's happening where there's representatives from other, you know, unfallen worlds or other places And Satan shows up to this meeting, and God asks him, what are you doing here? And he says, from walking to, where did you come from? He says, from walking to and fro over the face of the earth. And then he starts, you know, kind of challenging and accusing God, that basically, you know, God tells him, whoa, 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 not everyone's pledging allegiance to you. What about my servant Job? He doesn't buy into your nonsense. What about my servant Job? And he says, rubbish, (laughs) for my British friend here, rubbish right? He's only serving you because you're blessing him. 
and you only bless him so that he will serve you. So Job is selfish and you're selfish. And this happens twice. And this is such an important point that the very first book that's written of the Bible begins with this narrative of Satan accusing God and God's followers of being totally selfish. This is what is called projection taking your own character traits and projecting upon the person that you've got a beef with, right? Whenever you're being selfish and narcissistic and saying, man, what a narcissist that guy is, when really that's how you are. This is what Lucifer's doing here. But God isn't threatened by this. He allows for Job to be tested. And in the end, it's proven that God was not working through selfish principles at all, nor does he demand things out of his people for selfish reasons. He gives free will to all, and it's love that leads him to do so. And love is what leads his true followers to reciprocate and to obey. Amen. So the first book that God has recorded for humanity gives us that big picture of the conflict between good and evil, selfishness versus unselfish love. Every act of obedience and disobedience and every act of worship are birthed out of these two principles. This is an important point, beloved. Every act of obedience or disobedience and every act of worship are birthed out of one of those two principles, selfishness or other-centered love. And at the end of time, people are either going to worship God out of true love for Him and what He's done in Christ, or they'll worship Satan out of selfish motives to save their own physical lives. And we'll unpack this more as our meetings continue. But there was a, there's going to be a massive battle even on how people are preaching at the close of our history. Are we going to preach a message that's very fear-driven and fear-based that leads to a selfish response? Or do we give a last gospel call to people, leading them to respond out of love for God? This is an important point that we need to focus on here. Now, that same spirit of selfishness and self-exaltation is at the bedrock of the apostate religious systems that Satan raises up to counter God's movement of other-centered love. Every false religion is birthed upon these principles. Every false representation of the things of God is birthed on these principles of selfishness and marring and distorting the character of God. It begins with Nimrod, well, I mean, it begins with Lucifer, but then you start sowing these seeds in the two kind of trails of humanity. You've got the sons of God and the sons of men. Those who are faithful to God and those who are doing their own thing, I'm going to do me, don't tell me what to do. Right? These are kind of the two genealogies that start tracing the earth's history. And we see it clearly in Nimrod, whose name means to rebel who eventually sets up a place in the land of Shinar that becomes Babylon. How many people have heard of the Tower of Babel? Right? It was a grand act of disobedience, of selfishness. God made a promise He would never again destroy the world by a flood. What was their response? God can't be trusted. We cannot put our trust in Him. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save ourselves. That's the heart of Babylonian religion. Right, This idea that it's about me, it's self-focused, it's self-elevating, and man must save oneself. So they build this tower towards the heavens so that when a flood comes again, because God can't be trusted to not bring another flood, we'll be safe. But God confounds their language and spreads them abroad. And eventually that same form of system shows up in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about him on our first night together. King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 but he erects an image to himself in Daniel chapter 3, putting self first. And then later, 
In another circumstance, he ends up being humbled. I believe it's in Daniel chapter 4. He goes crazy for a season. He says, is this not great Babylon which I have built? And then eventually he goes crazy for seven years, literally, he's eating grass in a field, and then he comes to recognize that God alone is just and righteous, and he ends up being converted towards the end of his reign by God's grace. And there's a good lesson for us here. Even people who are worshiping in a Babylonian frame of mind, God's still working on them. God's still striving for them. God is striving for the lost. Even people who get it and don't get it and get it and don't get it, God keeps giving them the goods. God keeps pursuing them and wooing them, and he wins this man. But there is great danger in this Babylonian form of thinking. And so we see it again in Daniel's day, but then the Bible refers to a prophetic form of Babylonian religion in 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. And we'll get into that here in a moment. And we're basically going to spend the rest of our time on that. Um, identifying this system that's laid out in prophecy, and will also show how the danger isn't just in a system, but it can be in our own hearts as well, whether we ascribe to the teachings of that system or not. And that's the real danger of bad religion. Elevating man, elevating self, elevating tradition at the expense of what God has said and at the expense of giving a healthy picture of how God operates. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, listen to this. Someone had written a letter under the auspices of coming from the Apostle Paul to the people of Thessalonica, basically saying, Jesus came already, y'all missed it, love Paul. And they're freaking out, like, whoa, 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 we missed it? So Paul responds to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about that next week, by the way. Yeah, next week. Um... And are gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. And then he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless what happens? The falling away comes first. So he says there are things that are going to precede the second coming of Jesus. One of them is a falling away. We'll get back into that. And the man of sin is revealed. Then what does it refer to this man of sin? How does it refer to him? The son of perdition. We'll come back to that in just one moment. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So the initial thought is it's going to be like anti-God in nature. But then listen to what he says. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So it's going to be religious in nature. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness, it's an important word there in 2 Thessalonians 2, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Now that phrase, son of perdition, is only used one other time in Scripture. And this is a really good Bible study principle. When you're studying something, you don't quite know what it means, look at that same phrase other places in Scripture and see how it's defined, what type of context is given, right? You're comparing the word with other words. You're comparing Scripture with Scripture and allowing Scripture to interpret itself. So when Paul uses this phrase, the son of perdition, he's wanting you to go searching for where that's used because it will tell you something to understand what he just said. 
Bible prophecy is the same thing. Revelation is laced with that. All kinds of Old Testament references that aren't just there randomly. There's something in that Old Testament story that it just referenced that will help you understand what's going on in Revelation. Same thing's happening here. The son of perdition. It's found one other place, and it's in John chapter 17 and verse 12. It says, while I was with them, this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, while I was with them, the disciples in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except who? The son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Who do you think he's referring to here? Judas. Judas is one of the 12 disciples who fell into apostasy, who betrayed Jesus, who sold him for a price. So Judas was cherishing a spirit that was not in harmony with God's kingdom principle. The gospels tell us that Judas was taking money from the offering plate. Judas was being very selfish. He was one who was quick to assert himself and to try to get Jesus set up on a throne in earthly Israel instead of letting him be the suffering Messiah. He wanted to be next to Jesus when he conquered the Romans. The problem is that's not why Jesus came. So Judas had a distorted worldview that was self-focused, right? He would be a great Babylonian Christian, (laughs) unfortunately. And the apostate religious system that's being alluded to in 2 Thessalonians 2 is built upon that same foundation. It started with God and deviated from that course through selfishness and covetousness. And this system, like Judas, is going to eventually betray Christ. Now, when we cherish a spirit of independence, stubbornness, and selfishness, it's the spirit of Antichrist. The word anti, because many people think when they hear Antichrist, it's something that's militarily opposed to Jesus. That's not actually how it reads in the original language. When the word anti is used, it's actually meaning in the place of. It's literally the switcheroo, something else claiming to be Jesus or standing in the place of Jesus instead of Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2, that he sets himself in the temple of God, claiming that he is God. Are you with me tonight? Paul is alluding to the eventual Antichrist system, the system that is propagating a a picture of God that, that cannot lead to a healthy result, right? Okay, so when we place our own wisdom, preferences, and desires in the place of Christ uh, in our hearts, we're cherishing a spirit of Antichrist in that nature. Does that make sense? We're putting ourselves in place of Jesus. Continuing in 2 Thessalonians 2, now in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Again, this word lawless is used multiple times. So it it has some issue with the law, the system does. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That system will eventually be destroyed, just as was promised in Daniel 2, that rock cut without hands will smash all earthly systems. That will eventually happen. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Even miracles will be worked by this system. And with all unrighteous deception, this is an important word, Jesus actually in Matthew chapter 24, when he's kind of giving the signs of the times, kind of alluding to what the state of the world will be before Jesus comes, it's very much like the world you see today, unfortunately, getting worse by the day. There's a word that Jesus used multiple times in Matthew 24, and it's deception. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Jesus' greatest concern from the church wasn't what was going on in the world and what the state of the world would be. His concern was deception in the church. This was Jesus' greatest concern on the precipice of the second coming of Jesus. Deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Okay? 
So, Jesus, Paul here is saying that before Jesus comes, there's going to be a falling away that happens in the church, unfortunately. And it's going to happen in the temple of God because that's where this guy is going to take his seat, right? Where this system is going to take its seat in the very church of God. And the man of sin is going to take his seat in the temple of God, which is the church. Someone's going to take over the headquarters of the church and they're going to proclaim themselves to be God. They're going to exalt themselves above everything that will be worshipped, which sounds just like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, doesn't it? Sounds just like it, just like the, the language of Lucifer, wanting to be above the stars of God and even above God himself. And it says in the Greek, in verse 3, the man of sin is actually referred to as the man of lawlessness. And then in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. In verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. That very law of love that we talked about in our last meeting together, that's a transcript of God's character of love, will be assaulted, will be attacked by this system while claiming to be on the side of God. And this text is saying that a lawless individual is going to take his seat in the church of God and be acting as if he is God. Now, there are multiple instances in the Bible, uh, particularly in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, where they allude to this anti-Christian power that's to come. One of them is in Daniel chapter 8. And we won't have time to go into this vision, but I would encourage you to study it. And again, you're going to get handouts tonight. Make sure you go through these handouts. Don't just take my word for it. Search those scriptures for yourself and see if what we're saying is, is actually proving true. Check the history books, line everything up. But it says in Daniel chapter 8, there's this vision that Daniel's given of a ram and a he-goat warring with one another. And the... Um, the goat ends up trampling the ram, and it has four notable horns, and then eventually one small horn comes of the greatest notoriety and ends up causing all kinds of problems. And we'll read some of what happens with that little horn beginning in Daniel 8 and verse 11. We'll see also here in a moment in Daniel 7, a little horn is also mentioned there, both of which are talking about the same power, the same entity. Throughout Daniel, there's this principle that's called repeat and enlarge. It also happens in Revelation where a statement is made or, or a timeline is given or some information is given, then you zoom in. So for instance, in Daniel 2, there's a vision of the metal man. Very broad details, minor details about the kingdoms that they represent, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the iron and clay. In Daniel chapter 7, it's like you zoom in in the camera lens and you get more details of those same powers. And we'll come to Daniel 7 in a moment. In Daniel 8, you zoom in even further to more. And then in Daniel 11, you're zoomed in so far, you need a bunch of history books to figure it out. Uh, they give a lot, a lot of details that many scholars even kind of wrestle with in Daniel chapter 11. But in Daniel 8, it's giving details about this anti-Christian power. Scholars universally agree this little horn power is referring to the Antichrist. It says that he even exalts himself as high as the prince of the host. Does that sound like Isaiah 14, that Luciferian language? And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. Well, this should be troubling because if you remember from our third presentation together, everything about the sanctuary service is telling us about who? About Jesus and his ministry to save the world. And so if someone is assaulting something that's happening in the sanctuary, they're, they're attacking in some form or fashion the understanding of the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? If someone gets in and starts monkeying with the main thing that God is using to teach us about the plan of salvation, they must be doing something in their teachings that's distorting our view of the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. 
And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, the army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast truth to the ground, and he did this and prospered. Right? This reign of this little horn. Continuing in Daniel 8, verse 25. Through his cunning, he shall cause what to prosper? Deceit. And he shall exalt who? Himself. And where does he exalt himself? Just like Lucifer in Isaiah 20, uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28. Same, same principles. So these ideas are not unique to this system, and that's the point. The system isn't really the big issue, right? The issue is the principles that underlie the system, and they sound very scarily familiar to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. He shall exalt himself in his heart and destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, will even war against Jesus himself. But he shall be broken without human means, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which is told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for your first in many days in the future. In Daniel's day, that time's not now. It's coming later for him. Uh, in fact, he won't even see it, but it's going to come later in his history. Revelation chapter 13 also gives some of this picture of the anti-Christian power, and it's the first beast. There are two beasts listed in Revelation chapter 13. We'll probably address the second one in a future message, but tonight we'll address it briefly here in Revelation 13, uh, and then we'll also cover Daniel 7 and, and cover the connection. So there's a beast that comes out of the sea, and it was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Now, does anybody remember who the dragon is in Revelation chapter 12 from our second message together? Anybody remember? It's Satan, okay? So Satan gives the authority to this system that's represented by a beast. In Daniel chapter 7 that we'll get to in a moment, it mentions this idea that the horn is representative of a kingdom. So the little horn is some form of kingdom that's wreaking havoc on the earth. Okay, we know that much. And the beast that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 is also representing a kingdom. It's the same idea. Prophecy at times will use different forms of illustration to communicate truths, right? So they don't just say like a king did something. They'll use something to explain a kingdom like an animal or a horn or something else. Bible prophecy just works that way. That's just the way that they communicated it. Um, because something in the description they give will tell you about the traits of that particular kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay, it's just the way it does it. And so in your handouts, there'll be more information on that as well. So the dragon gave his power and his authority, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So it's going to have worldwide impact and influence and, and notoriety. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Kind of this pompous type statement. No one can touch this. It's the greatest, right? It's untouchable. Verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Okay? So it's, they use a lot of male pronouns. Like there's a man at the head who's going to say and teach things that are blasphemous in nature. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. We'll come back to that later. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy again against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, if you're only reading this, you would think that it is something that's not religious in nature. But it's talking about the same system that Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So it's not that it's speaking against God as if people shouldn't follow God. It's giving terrible, distorted pictures of God. Does that make sense? 
The blasphemous pictures are distorting in nature. To blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. It's even going to be at war with the people of God in some form or fashion. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain for the foundation of the world. Eventually, it's going to have such massive global impact and power that all but the saved, all but God's special people will end up following after it. But there's a second beast in Revelation chapter 13 that also uses very similar types of language. It says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. This second evil empire, eventually this distorted or corrupted empire, is going to speak using the dragon's language. Well, what type of language does a dragon use? self-focused, self-exalting, self-worshipping language, boastful, pompous language, which is essentially worshipping the dragon himself. In Revelation 13 and verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he will cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound will be healed. And it's eventually going to lead to people under the auspices of worshiping something of God will end up being worshiping something contrary to God, and they won't even realize it. So here's the point, guys. Selfishness is an act of worship, false worship. When you elevate man, when you elevate man's traditions, when you elevate self, it's going to lead to problems. It's the exact opposite of what God intended. When I'm worshiping myself and my own preferences and my own ideals and place me first, that's really worshiping at Satan's throne. And he's the one that governs me, right, when I do those things. Kind of reminds me of this idea of Aleister Crowley. Have you ever heard of Aleister Crowley? Do you know who that is? Um, He was actually a mentor to many people in pop culture, uh, unfortunately. But he basically was someone from England or from that, that particular area of the world. And his crowning teaching after he had this kind of spiritual encounter was this idea of do what thou wilt, do you. So he had a supernatural encounter when he was in Egypt. And the Bible kind of alludes to Egypt as a place of unbelief. And he ends up leading people following this idea of putting me first. I just kind of wonder who it is that taught him that. Uh, Very, very interesting. But anyway, he was into the dark arts and spiritualism and stuff that really wasn't healthy or good. But the point is, like, this idea of do what thou wilt is a borrowed theme from the dragon and the devil himself. That's the point, putting you first. Now, going back to Revelation 13, look at what happens now. It says that he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men and deceives those on the earth, those who dwell on the earth. So deception is still going to be rampant in this stage in universe history. Deception, that thing Jesus was so worried about. So they're going to be working miracles to overlook the deceitful root structure that uplifts the dragon system of worship. This is what we're told. But in contrast, so in Revelation 13, there's a lot of bad religion, a lot of force, a lot of coercion, a lot of people being told that they have to worship or forced to worship, which is not how God operates. Because remember, God is love and love always gives people freedom. So there's going to be a religious system that's coercing and pushing people to worship in ways that are contrary to how God operates and under penalties right? Under challenges. If you don't change, if you don't change your position, you will die. Serious stuff, beloved. 
But in Revelation chapter 14, and we won't have time to go into this this evening, but in Revelation chapter 14, God gives one counter message to this apostate form of Christianity that's taking the world by storm. And he reveals his character of love and gives an invitation to worship. Not coercion, not force. He gives a clear depiction of who he is in his character and how he operates. He warns of the dangers of the Babylonian form of religion, and he invites people to worship him willingly and willfully. God gives this counterbalance to this apostate system at the close of his history. Now, go to Revelation chapter 17. We see more language about this anti-Christian power. So there were two separate beasts in Revelation 13. One of them was the Antichrist. One was a system that will support the Antichrist. Now in Revelation 17, listen to what it says. Come and I will show you the, great, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, in Bible prophecy, a woman depicts a church. For instance, in Revelation chapter 12, there's a pure woman who's adorned with the sun, has, as she's standing on the moon, she has a garland of stars around her head, all the sources of light that give to the earth. And it's speaking of God's true church, God's true people, but then he kind of shows apostate systems as like harlots or unfaithful. And this isn't uncommon. God did this in the Old Testament. Anyone familiar with the book of Hosea? You know, familiar with the idea that Hosea ended up marrying a harlot, and God was depicting the idea of the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. He depicted them as being harlots, as unfaithful to him as his bride. Okay, so it's not uncommon for God to do this. But this wine that's being referred to here are the teachings, right? Her teachings are selfishness and greed for gain. And she taught the kings of the earth even how to do trade and life. So this system has even influenced the way in which people do trade in the earth. Verses 3 and 4, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And she was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. Lots of expensive items here, lots of luxurious items. She's made herself luxurious and wealthy. Okay? And in verse 5, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This apostate system is called the mother of harlots, and it has many daughters. Those daughters are other religious movements that bear similar traits to the mother in leading people to serve out of fear and selfishness and in putting themselves and their own preferences first. Remember, like mother, like daughter, it's the same type of idea here. Other systems are following the lead of this system, this this chief system. And they're putting themselves and their own preferences first. They're giving a theology to the world that distorts the character of God and His unselfish love. So now let's close with Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we're talking about this, this again, this idea of repeat and enlarge. In Daniel 2, we have the metal statue that we talked about in our first meeting together. In Daniel 7, he's given four kingdoms again. He was given four different medals of kingdoms in Daniel 2. He's given four kingdoms again in Daniel 7. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast. We don't know what type of animal it was, but a terrible beast with ten horns. Those four kingdoms in Daniel 7 are the exact same kingdoms in the exact same order as the four kingdoms in Daniel 2. Four and four, this idea of a division that happens at the end, everything's the same, right? And you can, you can actually walk through this in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. You'll see the, the traits that connect together there in your handout will also help with that. And so eventually, though, when you have that ten-horned beast in Daniel chapter 7, 
it's going to do a work that's going to cause harm and havoc, just like we saw in Daniel chapter 8. Okay, here it is in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. I was considering those horns, those ten horns, and it says there was another one, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So this little horn ends up destroying three other kingdoms. Okay, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words, just like what we saw in Revelation chapter 13. Pompous, self-righteous words. Okay, And... It uproots three other kingdoms, destroys three other kingdoms in the process of coming into ascendancy. But this idea of blasphemy, uh, what does it mean by that? Well, the Bible has two definitions we can see for blasphemy. John chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus forgives someone's, uh, or Jesus basically makes a statement of equating himself with God. We can turn there if you like to. I don't have this in my slides, but I'll read it to you real quick. John chapter 10, verse 33 just so you can hear it from the word itself. I want to just give a quick reference to that. I'll go ahead and read it to you. John 10, verse 33, Jesus has just worked a miracle. Then the Jews answered him saying, so Jesus says, uh, go to verse 32. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which of these good works do you stone me? So they're about to try to kill Jesus. He says, you know, I've done these because my father's told me to do them. So for which of these good works are you stoning me? And in verse 33, they say, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So one of the biblical definitions of blasphemy is man equating themselves to the role of God. Okay. And we saw that same language in Ezekiel 28, by the way. Okay, that's the first one. The second one's found in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Jesus worked a miracle in healing somebody. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Jesus heals a paralytic man. If you want to write down that reference, Jesus heals a paralytic man. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And Jesus tells the paralytic man, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders are beside themselves and say, who can, what blasphemy this is, who can forgive sins but God alone. The Bible also declares that man claiming to forgive sins is an act of blasphemy. Now, Jesus is God, so he gets a pass. Amen? Jesus is fully entitled to forgive sins, but any man claiming to do so, the Bible declares to be blasphemy. Okay? Blasphemy. And again, scholars universally agree that this little horn is the Antichrist. So what we're going to do is just look at some identifying markers of who this power is. Okay, we've looked at big picture and now let's look at some details. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, and a fiery stream issued and came from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. A scene of judgment happens. But then we see this. Go to verse uh, 11. I didn't correct my slides here. That should say verse 11. Uh, I'll leave it up there, but I'll change it later. It says, I watched then because the sounds of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. So the idea of Daniel 7 that's alluding to here is that after those four beasts do their ruling on the earth, this little horn is going to show up. After those ten horns, we talked about this idea that the, um, when you get to the base of the statue in Daniel 2, it goes from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, to the division of Rome, what we know as modern-day Europe, 
right? That division that happens, this little horn will come up in that same geographical region, that same type of idea of those 10 horns, a scattering of the, the, what's left over the Roman Empire being you know, scattered and separated from within instead of conquered from without. This little horn's going to come up somewhere in that geographical region. It comes up among them, but it's separate from them, we're told. So after the rule of this little horn power, this, Paul even said this in 2 Thessalonians 2, that Jesus can't come until the falling away comes first, right? This type of apostasy that takes place. These are all talking about the same thing. And what's alluded to here in Daniel 7 is this idea that there's going to be a judgment that happens in heaven. This beast will be judged and then Jesus will come. Okay? We're just given some timelines of what happened. That's all that's being said here. But go to verse 13 because now Daniel's going to get an interpretation to his vision. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And uh, actually in verse 13 to 14, it's just talking about the second coming and Jesus destroying all those things that need to be destroyed. So we're going to skip that, actually. Here we go, now in verse 15. It's the same idea of the rock cut without hands smashing the statue. Same principles. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved to my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all this. So he made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four what? Kings. kings which arise out of the earth. Just what we've been saying before. The four metals are four kingdoms. The four kings or the four beasts are four kings. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. Just like Daniel 2. Now in verse 19. But I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with his teeth of iron and his nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and those ten horns that fell before it, and the three that fell before it. And he had eyes like a man, and and a mouth, and he spoke pompous words. It's got a man at the head speaking blasphemies. And we, we talked about this idea of blasphemy, claiming to be God, claiming to forgive sins. Okay? And it's making war against the saints, we're told in verse 21. And then judgment happens in favor of the saints. Verse 23, um, the fourth kingdom on earth shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces. And then he explains what happens with these ten horns. These ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise when? After then. So after this division of Rome happens chronologically, sometime after that, this little horn is going to arise, which will be different from the first ones. So it's not going to be one of those 10 Germanic tribes that was separating. It's going to be something different. Okay? And he'll speak again, pompous words against the Most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Do we see that in Revelation 13? Yeah, it's the exact same thing. Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 are sister chapters. We won't have time to go into that this evening, but they're sister chapters. You see in Revelation 13 a, ba- a bear, or lion, a bear, a leopard, and a tin-horned beast. And you see the same things in Daniel 7. The two are connected. Daniel sees them in chronological order from beginning to end. John in Revelation sees them in reverse order because he's looking from the end of time back in time. But it's the same kingdom, same idea. They're parallel chapters and sister chapters. But it persecutes the saints in the Most High, intends to change times and law. And the saints will be given into its hand for a time, times, and half a time. So the ten horns are ten kings that come out of this division. And uh, these are the principles that we see here. Okay, Now, this idea of a time, times, and half a time is is using language that is already used elsewhere. Uh, So, for instance, whenever Nebuchadnezzar went crazy for that span of seven years, it says seven times will pass over him. It was referring to seven years. That language is already used in Daniel. 
Here's saying the same thing. So a time is one year, times is plural, it's two years, and a half a time is half a year. So it's going to rule for three and a half, you know, uh, it, it seems like three and a half years. But in the Jewish calendar, their years were 360 days, not 365. And so this is going to end up equaling 1260 days or the way Bible prophecy looks at this, it's a day for a year principle. We're going to look at two verses about this in just a second. It's speaking of 1260 literal years. Now, in Ezekiel chapter uh, Ezekiel chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we see this principle found in the Old Testament of using a day for a year in Bible prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, There is a judgment coming to the people of God. They're going to go into exile, and at the end of that time, a day for a year, they'll eventually come back. That's kind of the similar thread. Ezekiel chapter 4, beginning of verse 5, For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you've completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. And then he says, I have laid on you a day for each year. So this time of the, of the people of God going into exile is going to equate to a day for a year in Bible prophecy. Similar principle that we see in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, the people of Israel were unfaithful. Those spies that we talked about before, they were unfaithful. They were lacking faith. And as a result of this, though they were gone for 40 days, the nation will not have to wait 40 years, a day for each of those years, because of this whole circumstance. Numbers chapter 14 and beginning in verse 34, it says this. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, to each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So this this kind of cause and effect situation here is that the people of God are going to go into some form of exile and it'll be a day for a year. Well, when the saints are being persecuted during these really difficult times, it's another form of exile. It's the same principle, the same type of idea of a day for a year. So what's being equated to here is that this system... This power is going to rule for 1,260 years, persecuting God's people, doing blasphemous things. It's not going to be pretty, we're told. But then we're told this, that the court shall be seated, and they'll take away his dominion and consume and destroy it forever, and eventually God will set up his kingdom. So judgment's found in favor of the saints. Now, in Revelation chapter 18, there's a few more explanations here, and then we'll uh, get to our kind of start landing this plane. That in Revelation chapter 18, God is going to raise up a movement at the end of time to give a true and accurate picture of the character of God in the face of the distortions in Revelation 17 and Revelation 13, and the earth will be illuminated with the glory of God. But there's a charge given by these messengers in Revelation 18 to the world, calling people out of Babylon. It says, come out of her, my people. God says that he has people who are living within the structure of this system who don't recognize the danger, and God in his mercy is saying, hey, come out of that system. Come out of her, my people. And he's not just calling his people out of Babylon. He's also calling Babylon out of his people. Those principles of self-righteousness, of self-exaltation, striving for supremacy, they have to go. My people can't live like that. Forsake Satan's kingdom principle and embrace mine. So here's the main traits we see of this little horn power in what we've read in our verses tonight. 
It's a small horn. It's going to be a small country or kingdom, a kingdom or a power that's made claims about itself that assume the prerogatives of God. It took three of the original ten kingdoms out by the roots or completely annihilated them. It destroyed three empires to come into power. It shall speak pompous and blasphemous words against the Most High. It shall persecute the people of the Most High, seeking to change God's law and times. Remember, 2 Thessalonians 2 referred to it as a lawless one and doing lawless deeds. And the saints are given into its hand for 1260 days or prophetic years. And so when you line up all these characteristics and refer to history, there's only one entity that fits the mold, and it's the church. The corruption of the church that happens from the first century moving on through earth's history, and the headquarters of that church was in Rome, the smallest country, the divided Roman Empire. And additionally, when the church came to power in 538, the emperor Justinian put the bishop of Rome, the then leader of the church, what we now know today it would be the Catholic Church, right? The Bishop of Rome was given civil power. A religious entity was given religious power, yes, but also civil power over the western half of the kingdom. And as we look through the course of history, this happened in 538, and they reigned all the way until 1798 when the, uh, the General Berthier, at Napoleon's bidding, yanked him off of the throne in 1798. For 1260 years, this kingdom was ruling, and people who were claiming to believe God's word and striving to believe God's word were burned at the stake, were killed just for trying to believe what God's word had said or to believe it for themselves, to have access to the word of God. Right? All these characteristics fit throughout history. God had faithful people who were believing what the Bible said, but they were referred to as heretics and were persecuted. Uh, we've seen blasphemy based upon the biblical definition to assume the prerogatives of God and claim to forgive sins and claiming to be God. And this happens within this system, right? You don't go directly to God to receive forgiveness of sins. You have to go to a priest and a man forgives your sins. That's the biblical definition of blasphemy. The church claims to control your destiny, right? If you're a member of the church, you're saved. If you're not a member of the church, you're lost. But only God can control one's destiny. Your destiny in the eternal kingdom is not based upon church membership. It's based upon the consecration of the heart, right? Those are claiming prerogatives of God. Only God can forgive sins, so it's blasphemy to claim that responsibility. The church persecuted. We're told that at a conservative estimate, 50 million people were destroyed, were killed at the hands of the church. The church employed the civil state to carry out its bidding. Right? There are many people today who don't want to believe in God because they believe that the church signed off on things like this. Right? They believe that God signed off on things like this because of the crusades and so forth. God does not sign off on that. And it says that they shall seek to change times and laws. Even the very law of God was changed. If you read the Ten Commandments um, from any catechism, you notice that the wording is different. Uh, the way that things are laid out, the way that a Catholic Bible reads still reads normally, but the way the catechism reads and the way that they teach it is different, that the commandment involving idols is removed. But the nine commandments don't have the same ring to them, so they split the tenth commandment into two. One of the commandments now is don't covet your neighbor's wife, and then the tenth is don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Everything that we've been talking about that prophecy has been saying will happen has literally been fulfilled through the means of this system, okay? Okay. And, and so Daniel 7 is giving us a prophetic history of the corruption of the Christian church. The Christian church was hijacked and an ugly version was perpetuated for centuries that's turned many people against God and from religion as a result. 
But God didn't sign off on any of this. In fact, the French Revolution that was warring against what had happened in the late 1700s was in direct cause and effect relationship to what had happened because of the teachings of Rome. So what is now modern day atheism is largely happening because of the teachings of Rome throughout the ages. That whole philosophy that led to the French Revolution is what many people still cling to today. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus has nothing to do with the abuses of religion or their misrepresentation of Him and the Father. Religious institutions endorsing violence, persecution, removing freedom of choice, all have their foundations in the first true apostate in Lucifer. But here's what we are not saying. No one can leave this room without understanding this. God has people in that movement. They are His people. He loves them. We are not making any statements on the sincerity or conversion of people who find themselves as members of this church. That's not what we are saying at all. What we are saying is the danger of what is being taught by this system. Do you understand the difference? We're not against anyone. What we are saying is God in His mercies, it says in Revelation chapter 18, is trying to awaken the world to the fact that there is danger in this system. These types of teachings will not prepare you for what's to come. They will not draw you closer to me. They can't, right? They're counterintuitive. If you want a healthy and true picture of how I do life, you're going to have to come out of Babylon to see that, okay? And so we're not making any statements or judgment calls about its adherence or even the leaders for that matter, because no man knows the heart. Amen? Amen. No man knows the heart. But the teachings are of tremendous concern to God. So this is not about being members of a movement. It's about what the movement is teaching and doing in the name of God and that God wants His people to be aware of how dangerous that is and to believe and come to something better. That's the point, okay? And so this is why it's so uh, difficult. Now, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 to 14, that the state of the world is going to be so bad before the second coming that lawlessness is going to abound and the love of many will go cold. So last night, or in our last meeting together, we talked about this idea that the law was a transcript of God's character of love. So a spirit of lawlessness logically leads to a spirit of lovelessness. Do you see that? Anytime that we're at war with the law of God, we're actually effacing from the world a picture of God's love that we need and that is healthy and that is good. So here's what we're told. This should be our approach to life in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this the love of God is manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is our calling, beloved. This is our calling to live a life that reflects this type of picture. A love that does not seek its own, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that, is lo- that, that suffers long and is kind, that doesn't envy, doesn't parade itself, isn't puffed up. The tragic thing is the language of this system we've been talking about this evening is puffed up, is envious, did not suffer long. It killed people that didn't agree with them, right? It was seeking its own. It was easily provoked, again, persecuting and killing, and thought and did evil, right? And does not rejoice in iniquity is what, the way that we should do life, right? But rejoice in the truth to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things because love never fails.
Jesus says that his true people and his true movements will be very, very clear to the world. He says, by this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another and for the world. But if you're destroying and persecuting and hurting people who don't look like you, then there's no way that the world will know that we're truly Jesus' disciples. Does that make sense? Right? I have no desire to throw stones at any religious movement. This is not easy to do this evening. I hope you understand that. But God is very clear that there is a danger here. And we need to understand to separate ourselves from things that give a distorted, unhealthy picture of God, right? That corrupt the plan of salvation, that corrupt the way that things operate. God has to do this. And so again, this is my commandment, John chapter 15 and verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So the papacy and its role in Bible prophecy was not birthed in a silo. We're not trying to only focus on what's happening in the Vatican right now. That's not our emphasis. This did not start in Rome. This started in heaven with the first apostate. And this system, right, this form of thinking has been going on throughout Earth's history. Do you see that? All we're talking about tonight is the end-time fulfillment of this system of Babylonian thinking. But this has been preceding even that. This was going on before 538, beloved, well before that. Are you with me tonight? Okay. So this isn't about people. This is about teachings and philosophies that uphold systems. And we've seen clearly that this language that's used by this power and about this power is the same language that's used about Lucifer and his form of thinking. And is that dangerous? Yes or no? very dangerous. That's the point. So we have, so it's the last stop on the train, but it didn't start the train. We need to take a step back and realize from whence it came. And we also need to see if any of those traits are in me. Some of us may be saying, well, at least I don't find myself believing what's in that system. But here's the danger, beloved. It's not just the system. It's the infrastructure that holds it up in the philosophy. We could be drinking the wine of Babylon, even if we're not members of this particular movement. Maybe we don't believe in the sacraments or the veneration of the saints, but are we exalting self or giving a picture of God that would lead people to reject him? If so, we also are drinking the wine of Babylon. Are you with me? None of us get a pass, beloved. None of us get a pass. Placing our emphasis on man, on self, and not Jesus always leads to bad religion. When we say bad religion, we're not just talking about one system is bad religion. We're saying what holds up that system is bad religion. Do you see the difference? Selfishness, self-exaltation, emphasis on man and his traditions in the face of the teachings of God's word. And bad religion always leads to persecution. Right? All of us, in some form or fashion, have been horribly and unjustly impacted by bad religion. Somebody who claimed to know God who said a nasty and terrible thing, who were selfish and hypocritical, it's all the same. But we're told this in Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, when Jesus is being crucified on a Roman cross, he's offered Roman wine. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but what did Jesus do with that Roman wine? He refused it. Beloved, Jesus refused Roman wine to empower us to do the same. Amen? And it's truly the wine that comes directly from the serpent. In John chapter 13 and verse 1, we're told that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. Jesus lived out the Father's unselfish love to the very end, beloved. 
And that's the call that He's given to you and to me to respond to that, to receive that. We're told this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. For the love of Christ compels us, right? It drives us, it consumes us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, why? So that we would no longer live for ourselves. Beloved, Jesus died for us to remove this whole Babylonian way of thinking, to stop only living for you. It's not about us, beloved. And just because, again, we may not find ourselves, you know, being influenced by some of the teachings in this particular system in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, that does not mean that you are not drinking the wine of Babylon. Are you with me today? All of us are prone to this in our sinful flesh, and we have to come and, and, and bow down to the feet of Jesus and plead with Him. Jesus, you died for me so that I would no longer live for myself. Change me, O God, I pray. Do not let me live a life that would not honor and reflect you accurately, so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for Jesus, who died for them and rose again. I know that this evening we've had to go kind of rapid fashion to kind of show you the big picture of prophecy. I strongly encourage you this evening, please go through your handout. Study what we've talked about. Read the history books. This is what Martin Luther believed. This is what John Calvin believed. This is what John Wesley believed. This is what Roger Williams, the first Baptist minister in America, believed. This is what all Protestants believed in the, in the late uh, 1700s and, and early 1800s. Like this, people were understanding the issues at play here in the mid-1500s and so forth. They understood what the issue was. This is why Martin Luther left. This was his church. He didn't want to leave, but he was coming to recognize as he understood the gospel, it's not about me and my works. It's about the righteousness of Jesus. And priests can't forgive. Martin Luther had an existential crisis in understanding this. He realized I cannot affiliate myself with a system that is so inaccurately depicting the true character of God in His love. And he had to remove himself, but begrudgingly. He tried to win his church from within. He wasn't able to, so he had to step back. Okay? So this, again, this is not easy to share. I don't like having to do this, but I owe this to you, beloved. I can't not do this. Because God does not want anyone to be falling under the influences of these types of teachings. Does that make sense? Yeah. God wants His people to be saved. God wants His people to know the truth. And so anyway, I would strongly encourage you, study for yourselves. Read Daniel 7. Go through the handout that we gave you to give you more information. If you need even more resources, I'm happy to supply them, by the way. Happy to do so. If you have any questions, I'm happy to talk with you about it. So I want you to grab your appeal cards, your decision cards. We're going to do it differently for the rest of the series to give you a chance to give your feedback, okay? To share any thoughts you have, any questions you have. You can engage more this way. We can directly follow up with you this way. So grab your cards here. And here are the five things. You've got five check boxes. Here are the five options that you can respond to this evening and write any comments you have on the back. If anyone would like a home visitation, a home study, any questions you want to talk after the fact, we can. Here's the first one. I want to ensure that God is on the throne of my heart and not myself. If that's you, based on what we've learned this evening, check that box. Number two, I want to commit to having the Word of God be my only standard of belief and practice and not the traditions of man. If that's you, I invite you to check that box. Number three, 
Again, a reminder that I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you haven't made a decision yet, but you feel that God is speaking to you. You can check that box tonight. Number four, I have a question. Maybe something about what we shared this evening is spurring you to have questions. Write them in there. We want to follow up with you. We don't want to leave you in a state where you feel that you can't interact and ask those questions. Put that on the back. Number five, I have a prayer request. Anything you'd like to have prayer for, feel free to check that box. But this is, this is what we want to kind of leave you with this evening. But let me ask this question. Has this made sense, beloved? Yes? Okay. Um, again, any questions you've got, we're happy to do that. Tomorrow night, we're going to address a completely different topic. Um, and we're not going to kind of go into more of this history for quite a while. But tomorrow night, we're going to address the idea of the reminder of your value. How many people kind of struggle with their own view of their value? You ever wrestle with that? I'm not good enough. I'm a loser. I'm not lovable. Right? We're going to address a gift that God has given to humanity to perpetually remind us of our value. A gift to humanity. But again, I'll put these, these back up here on the, on the slide so you can be able to see them. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. And then what they're going to do is these buckets, you'll be able to, to drop those in there once we finish. God in heaven, I thank you. Uh, this has been a difficult message to share, but I hope it's been an easy message to at least understand. Maybe not to receive. We may need to pray and work through that. But I pray that we've seen from Scripture that the very lies and infrastructure that Satan set up in the fall from heaven is still existent today. And you're calling your people out of that Babylonian form of thinking to place the emphasis on Jesus, not on man, not on self, not on preferences or tradition, but in the very teachings of Scripture and the Word of God. So God, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would not just call us out of Babylon, but that you would call Babylon out of us, that you would remove that spirit of selfishness from our hearts and from our minds, and that we would put you first and our fellow man. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.